Well, good morning, Orangewood. Great to see all of you and great to see all of our kids running off to O-Kids this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, you can join me. There will be in sections of John 1 and John 8 this morning. John 1 and John 8. You can follow along on the screens as I read. Friends, these words are inspired, sufficient, and true, and they're given to us in love. John 1, verse 14. And the word became flesh and it dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, the glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and true. John bore witness about him and cried out. This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me for from his fullness. We've all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side, he, Jesus has made him known. And then we go on to chapter eight, verse 48. Uh, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, uh, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Uh, The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. After, are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me and of whom you say he is our God. Uh, But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, yet are you not yet 50 years old and have seen Abraham? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Before you take a seat, would you pray with me? Well, gracious father, would you meet us again this morning through your word? Well, would you inspire us and point us to Jesus? Would you convict us and encourage us? Would you equip us for this journey you've called us to, to be your people in this broken world? And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Well, uh, I just want to say I was super bummed not to be with you last week for Mother's Day, but grateful for Pete and for our staff team. Um, But I did miss you. Uh, If you are a guest with us today, I'm really glad you're here. We have been in a sermon series called I Am Thomas, uh, looking at some of the doubts and questions we may have about the Christian faith. Um, These are questions that we have all struggled with at various points in our lives. And maybe this morning you find yourself struggling with today about the Christian story. And I'm grateful that you are here because the reality is we are all Thomas. We're all Thomas. We all bring our own doubts and questions to Jesus. And like Thomas, we find great relief that our questions are not pushed aside uh, by Jesus, but we're brought near to him. And this morning, uh, as we begin, I have a question for you, uh, for you to think about. 
Who is the most influential and important person in human history? Who, who is the most influential and most important person in human history? And there is an obvious answer to which the records show. And whatever you may think of him, the answer is Jesus Christ. Uh, the evidence is overwhelming throughout history and through the records that Jesus is the most important person, the most influential person in all of human history. Uh, Yale historian, Yale University historian, Yaroslav Pelkin put it this way. He said this, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull up out of the history, every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? Uh, you woke up this morning, right? You, you're here. Uh, you woke up today. Today is May 15th, 2022. 2022. Do you, do you know why it is 2022 and not some other time that we record history? It's because 2,022 years ago, there was this man who walked this earth. Almost every historian and scholar worth his salt says he lived, that he died on a cross. And then this massive movement exploded after his death, claiming that he rose from the dead. That happened 2,022 years ago. And our calendar system has been completely shaped to revolve around his life. Did you know that? Uh, John Ortberg shares uh, in his amazing book, Who Is This Man? A phenomenal book. I encourage you to read it. Um, Ortberg lives just south of the city of San Francisco. Uh, have you heard of San Francisco? Okay. How did that city get its name? Well, it got its name because there was this man named St. Francis of Assisi, and his life was radically transformed by this man named Jesus. Uh, just north of San Francisco, there is a city called San Jose. Have you ever heard of it? How did it get its name? Well, there was a man named St. Joseph whose life was radically transformed by this man named Jesus. And then we come to the city beautiful, Orlando. Do you know how Orlando got its name? Me neither. <laughs> but there are theories. Jesus radically changed this world. His impact is undeniable. Uh, Ralph Walder Emerson is a writer, poet, and many don't really know exactly what Emerson believed about Jesus, whether he came to faith in Jesus. But, but it, Emerson did not question the impact of Jesus on human history. This is what he said. The name of Jesus is not so much written as plowed into the history of the world. 
Emerson saying the impact of Jesus is everywhere, but why? Why? Because there was this first century rabbi and his followers who believed the audacious claims that he held about himself. That brings us to our first question. What were Jesus's claims about himself? Uh, In his book, How Jesus Became God, Bart Ehrman, who is a New York Times bestselling author, basically says in the book, uh, you know, Jesus really never claimed to be God. That was, that was, uh, he never wanted to be God, but it was his followers uh, looking to gain uh, influence in the wider culture that really had sparked this movement of his divinity. But when we look at the Bible, we do not see what Ehrman describes. First, we see that Jesus claimed to forgive just like God. Uh, you may remember the story. There's this paralyzed man, and uh, he has these friends who want to bring him to Jesus. That's, that's the sign of a good and true friend, that you would want to bring somebody to Jesus. And they're loading his mat, and, and the situation is that the house is crowded because everyone wants to be around Jesus. It's standing room only, like a Coldplay concert. You can't get in. And so if you know the story, what do these guys do? They, they take this paralyzed man onto the roof. And what do they begin doing? They, they begin ripping back the roof shingles on this house. I don't know if insurance covers that, but they lower this man down into the very presence of Jesus. And this is what we read in Mark 2, 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, Your sins are forgiven. Now, you may be thinking, okay, so what's the big deal? I mean, he just throws out a few sentences. What's the big deal with what he's saying here? But the crowd around Jesus knew exactly the claims that Jesus was making. You see this in the next two verses. It says this in verse six. Now, some of the scribes are sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Uh, There was a very real sense within the Jewish consciousness of the first century that your sins could be forgiven. Your sins could be forgiven in the temple. They could be given in the temple with a sacrifice. Uh, where, Where God declares in that temple through the priest, you've been pardoned. But nothing of that reality is happening here. Jesus is in a home. There is no sacrifice. There is no temple. There is no priest. But Jesus is declaring the divine reality and all the pardoning power of God is happening in and through my ministry. These crowds surrounding Jesus would disagree strongly with Bart Ehrman's claims in his book. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. So Jesus claimed to forgive like God, but also claimed to be one with God. Uh, We see this in John 10, uh, verse 27. Uh, The sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father are one. 
Now, once again, when you hear this uh, way that Jesus is talking, you may begin to assume kind of like today, the new age spirituality. Oh, we are all one with God. We all have this divine consciousness uh, that you may hear today. But you can tell by the very next response of this crowd, Jesus is getting the same reaction that he got earlier from these Jews that were listening. It says this in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus makes the claim that he is one with God, and it becomes very clear to these Jews listening to him what he was saying. They, they picked up stones. They're ready and we've all been there, right? We've, we've had situations in life where we, we've said something in a moment. We, 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 something came out of our mouth, and the second it came out of our mouth, we, we wish you guys, you, you say something to someone else, and you can tell by their response, that face, the look. You know the look I'm talking about? No pointing this morning, but there's a look you get. You say something wrong and in the moment, and you know, oh, I, I, I shouldn't have said that. I, I shouldn't have, have gone there. And you try to fix the issue. You, you'll say, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean it for it to come out that way. I, I didn't mean for you to interpret that way. But, but Jesus doesn't respond like that. The, these Jews are standing before him. They have rocks in hand. And, and in that moment, he, he, he doesn't say to them, wait, wait a second, guys, hold on. Time out, time out, time out. You, you misunderstood me. Let me explain what I was trying to get at. You misunderstand me. No, rather, Jesus doubles down. Oh, look at what it says in verse 37. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Jesus tells us when you, when you see my works, when, when you see what's being accomplished through me, you will know that I am in the father and the father is in me. There's a sense of divine union between the father and the son. And you see this actually in verse 33 earlier, the Jews knew exactly the point that Jesus was making, just like his passage in Mark, they respond to Jesus' claims. And he says, you being a man, make yourself God. Now notice he doesn't say, they don't say you being a man, make yourself a God. He said, you being a man, make yourself God, the God. Jesus claimed to forgive like God, to be one with God. And finally, he claimed the name of God. He claimed the name of God. What do I mean? Jesus had many run-ins with the Jews throughout his ministry, but probably none set him on the course for eventual death like the one in John 8. Jesus takes the very name of God. Um, Jesus is arguing with the Jews about Abraham, and we read this. Uh, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Uh, Jesus makes a massive claim here. He takes on the very name of God. He, he says this before Abraham was, I am. And you know, if you know anything about grammar, that does not make sense. Usually you say before Abraham was, I was. Now, why is he saying before Abraham was, I am? You have to remember back in the story of Moses in the burning bush. Uh, God comes in this fire moment of this bush 
and, and, and God reveals himself and, it, and he's, God says to Moses, go and free my people, go, go liberate them. And, and Moses says, hey, listen, I, I, I'm going on behalf of you uh, to the, the largest ruler in the known world at the time. I'm, I'm going and, and, and I'm basically telling him, you're going to have to let go of all your working force. Uh, and who should I say sent me? And that's where we get to in Exodus three. It says this. Uh, then Moses said to God, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Uh, t- tell, tell them I am sent you. This is the divine name of God. Essentially, the name I am carries with it that God is the the ground of all being. The one who is, the one who always will be, the one whose very existence holds reality together. That's what I am meant. And this became a defining point of the beliefs of the Jewish people that separated them from the surrounding pagan neighbors, that there was only one God and there is no other. So Jesus is making this massive claim. Who, who, who really is he in John 8? And once again, you can see the response to his claims. It tells us once again, these Jews hearing this picked up stones to stone him. Now, where do they get that? Well, we see that in Leviticus 28, where it says this, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name, the name shall be put to death. We see here the mention of the importance of the name. It is capitalized. It's talking about how the name of God, I am. The Jews were doing what you would expect them to do when someone around them was claiming to be God. They were, they were ready to stone them. That was part of their Levitical rule. So three different instances throughout the Gospels where we see Jesus' claim about himself. It is unquestionable that we know Jesus saw himself as divinity. He saw himself as God. Now, what about his followers? What about the crowds that heard him? Well, that's our second question. What did others think about Jesus' claims? It's very clear from the earliest days of the church that they understood the claims that Jesus was making and they believed them. In our passage that I read at the beginning of the sermon, uh, we see this reality in John 1.18. It says this, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known, Jesus. He's made him known. I don't know if you've ever had this happen to you, but this happens at moments in life when you realize something or you're doing something in life. And, and there's this moment where you uh, you, you say something and someone has a comment for you or you say something or you do some sort of gesture and you can feel it in the depths of your soul that it just happened. And what happens in that moment is you say something or you make this gesture and someone else in your life says to you, oh, you look like your mother when you did that. Or, 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 you, or you, you, you look like your father when you do that. Or you, you look like your father when you say it that way. And, and when that happens, there, there is this moment when, when somebody says that to you or when you feel that inside, you're like, oh my goodness, like I'm turning into my parents. No one ever in that moment goes, great, this is the greatest moment in my life, right? No one goes there. 
Have you ever wondered why this happens? Why, why, we, why do we feel that? Now, it could be some um, things we don't want to be when we grow up. It could be just a black eye on individuality. This happened uh, to me recently. Uh, some of you have, have, have said this. Um, you, you've come up to me and you've, you've said, uh, your, your daughter, Emmy, um, she is so pretty. She reminds me so much of her mother. And uh, I just want you to know this morning, I take offense to that. Um, because uh, I think she looks exactly like me. Um, and uh, we say things like this, right? Wow, they are a spitting image. Uh, Tyler, Emmy is a spitting image of you. And I'll say thank you. Friends, here's the thing. The followers of Jesus never claim Jesus is a spitting image of God. They claimed he was God. He is God. You see, the biblical truth throughout the Bible is that no one can see God and live, but the followers of Jesus claim that Jesus is God with us. That's what we see in Matthew. He says, you are Emmanuel, God with us. Paul tells us Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews tells us Jesus is the exact imprint of God. Scholars are in full agreement. There, there are conservative scholars and liberal scholars. They have found two Christological hymns buried in Paul's writings, one in Colossians and one in Philippians. Scholars all agree that Paul is quoting these hymns in his writings because they have been circulating. These, these hymns, all scholars agree, conservative and liberal, that they were formed in the very, very early days of the church after Jesus' resurrection. This is one of them from Philippians 2. This is a hymn. It says this. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in him in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This, this hymn is considered by all scholars, conservative and liberal, to be from the very, very early days of the church. And you may be thinking, okay, that's, that's great, Tyler. Uh, thanks, for, thanks for sharing that this morning. What's the big deal? How does that serve any purpose in Jesus's claims? Well, buried in that hymn is a quote from the book of Isaiah from the Old Testament. And this is what it says in Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return empty. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. Paul is sharing an extremely early Christological hymn in Philippians, which is basically an allusion to Isaiah. The hymn is attributing that Jesus is God within a couple of years of his resurrection. 
The early church was gathering to sing a hymn that claimed Jesus was God. To see Jesus was to see the exact imprint of the Father. Uh, I have a confession that I want to make this morning. I honestly don't know how Jesus did it. Um, Have you ever known someone in your life that seemed like they were able to get away with anything? Uh, Maybe a sibling or a friend or a coworker, someone in your life that just seems like they're always able to get away with anything going on in their life. But you, you see through all that charm. You see through all them. You see through them. You see their face right now. There are these people that we know, they just somehow seem to get away with anything. You, you live borderline angry and borderline jealous of them. I think this actually happens in our family. Some, um, sometimes we have these situations where uh, Emmy and Lane will come to us and, and they'll say, why is it that Caleb, our youngest, why is it that Caleb always seems to get away with everything? And the simple answer is he does. I'm just kidding. But we find ourselves in these situations where how do they keep getting away with things? And this has happened for years with Jesus. If I walk the streets of Orlando, if um, I'll let you pick the location, you, you put me in downtown Orlando. Uh, you, you take me to Disney. Uh, you drop me in Winter Park. Uh, you put me on the Rollins College campus. And I asked random people, tell me about Jesus Christ. What do you think of him? This is what I will hear because I've heard it for years. Jesus, oh, he was so great. He was wonderful. He was a wonderful person. Oh, I loved him. And then I would ask them, oh, well, was he God? Oh, no, 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 no. He and his followers, they were both wrong. They were wrong about that. It's amazing. Jesus pulled off one of the greatest scams in all of human history, according to them. And rather than calling him a liar because he deceived everyone, or rather calling him insane because he believed himself to be God when he was not, people continued to say that he was a great man. Friends, here's the reality. In the first century, if you walk the streets of Israel. If I drive to you in Galilee, you would never hear anyone espouse what we hear today about Jesus. Uh, John Stott, he's written a great book called Basic Christianity. I really commend it to you. And in this book, Stott says there are really only two responses to Jesus we see in the Gospels. You thought either one, Jesus was lying or crazy and you wanted him dead or you thought he was God in the flesh and your life was turned upside down to worship him. Those were the two, only two options we see there. There isn't this modern idea. Oh yeah, Jesus was wrong about the whole divinity thing about being God, but gosh, he sure was this great person. There were only two options. Crown him or kill him. Crown him or kill him. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis was an author. He was an atheist at one point in his life, and he came to faith in Jesus. And this is what he began to assess when he looked at the data. He put it this way in one of his books. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut up. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit him and kill him as a demon or or. You can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Uh, Friends, there are only two options we are left with about Jesus claims to be God. Crown him or kill him. Crown him or kill him. Now, someone will say this morning, but, but Tyler, uh, he, there was never the sense that Jesus had this about being God. It was his followers. They made it all up. Uh, they, they did that to gain status and approval and acclaim in the first century. But the biggest issue with that is they didn't gain status, approval, and acclaim. In fact, most of all of Jesus's early followers were killed for their belief that Jesus is God. That doesn't seem to fit a made up story. I mean, at some point in the anguish of death for many of these are the part. I mean, many of them experience absolutely awful, brutal deaths. That at least in that moment, at least one of them would finally go, OK, uncle, uh, uncle, it, it, it's not true. It's, it's a sham. We, we made it all up. Not one. They all suffered incredible persecution and most of them died for their faith. Blaise Pascal was a 17th century mathematician and he used his study of logic to really look at the evidence for Jesus and his claims of divinity. And I think he put it best when he said it this way. I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. Pascal applied logic to the explosion of Christianity in the first century, and this was his only conclusion. Something must have happened to this man that convinced his followers to believe he was truly God, that they would give up all earthly comforts and treasures and power and ultimately lose their life, crown him or kill him. That leads us to our final question. What is your response to Jesus's claims? The reality of following Jesus has very little to do with what other people think about Jesus claims. The reality is it's about what do you think about Jesus's claims? It has to get personal. Jesus with his followers at one point in his earthly ministry. And, and he says to these disciples, he says, uh, but who, who, who do people say that I am? And, and they start saying, well, well, some people say you are uh, like a prophet. And some people say you're the forerunner to the Messiah. And then what does Jesus do? He turns, and he says, but who do you say that I am? 
Maybe no more important question to answer in this life. Who, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Jesus is? Uh, our sermon series is called I Am Thomas because like this early disciple Thomas, we are filled with the same doubts and questions that Thomas carried. I am Thomas. You are Thomas. And even though Thomas was filled with doubts, it had to get personal for him as well. And, and we see that moment in his encounter with Jesus after the resurrection. This is what we read. Then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Uh, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas encounters the risen Jesus, but he doesn't say the Lord and the God here. What does he say? My Lord and my God crown him or kill him. History and tradition tells us Thomas traveled to India to share the gospel because his life had been transformed by this man named Jesus. Tradition also shares that Thomas on being in India was speared to death for this audacious claim that Jesus was in fact God in the flesh. What is your response to Jesus's claims? Is it transforming you? Is it making you a new person? Uh, I love this story um, that we got uh, this past Sunday um, posted on our social media and appeared. Someone sent it over to me just from this past Sunday. We can bring up that picture. Um, I would read it to you because the script is pretty small, uh, but this is what it says as the text block caught a flat heading to church this morning, but God led us to a space to experience true Christ like love. Two men from Orangewood church were super hospitable and offered to help my amazing husband get us back on the road and allowed him to freshen up in their restroom. They gave us water, snacks, and the reassurance that all things work together for our good. Romans 8, 28. To the pastor of Orangewood Church, thank you for teaching the love of Christ to your members. It definitely showed this morning. Such a great story. And the, the people have asked to be anonymous. Um, but I want to point out a, a line that really stuck out to me in that. It was the line to the pastor of Orangewood Church. Thank you for teaching the love of Christ to your members. It definitely showed this morning. And the reason that line stuck out to me is it is not about me at all. It is about someone in our church surrendering their life to the life-changing story of Jesus and saying, God, do whatever you want in me and through me. It's about parents. It's about fathers and mothers saying, we're going to get out of the rat race of this life in Orlando, and we are going to live our lives transforming our families and our kids it's about someone in our church who, who is single, living out their singleness, knowing that there is a pure and better companion in Jesus Christ. It's about students 
who their main priority is not just to get into a good college or just to be popular, but that how does my life count for, for Jesus? It's about people in our church who go to work not to get a promotion or to be seen as successful, but that their ultimate priority is, is seeing their work as God's outpost. God has put me here to live out the life-changing story of Jesus through everyone I touch. Uh, friends, don't you see, to surrender to Jesus, these are the stories of who we are, of who we become. When the reality of Jesus and who he is transforms us from the inside out. I mentioned earlier the 16th century mathematician, Blaise Pascal. Uh, shortly after the age of 30, he had an encounter uh, with a fire. It was a vision, uh, much like the, the vision of Moses. Uh, he had an encounter uh, with God. And the experience was so powerful on Pascal. He, he, he wrote it out on a small piece of paper and he pinned it to the inside of his jacket. And, and they only found this, this moment, this encounter with God after he had died. They, they noticed it pinned to the inside of his jacket. And this is what Pascal wrote. This is what it says. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23 November, from about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. God of Jesus Christ, my God and your God, forgetfulness of the world and of everything except God. He is only found by the ways taught in the gospel, grandeur of the human soul, joy, 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 tears of joy. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, let me never be separated from him. Amen. Pascal responded to Jesus's claims and it radically transformed his life. What about you? Have you found the joy Pascal experienced? What is your response to Jesus's claims? Will, will you crown him? Will, will, you, will you make him king of your life? Is it getting personal? I hope so. I hope so. Let's pray. Well, our Father, we thank you for your word that points us to Jesus again this morning, the, the reality of the divine son of God who transformed human history and continues to transform broken lives to be outposts of his kingdom in this world. And so Lord, would you work in us by your grace? Would you, would you use us to be people weaving our lives into the very fabric of Orlando. And we give you the glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen.